Tempest, it makes a fusion. <gasps> Wait. Welcome to Originality, the podcast where we talk about and explore the roots of creativity and creative genius. This is the first time we've recorded in like four months. Oh my gosh, Tempest, it's so good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you as well. So so it's been so long, and this is the part I'm not great at. I am one of your hosts, Aline Sims, and I am joined, as always, by Kay Tempest Bradford. You know, someday I'll get this stuff down. Tempest, how are you? I am great. Uh, there have been lots of things happening. So, yeah. Yeah, there's been lots of things happening. <laughs> I talked about it a little bit. Like, I felt people in a little bit uh, at the beginning of our last episode. And um, we'll, I think we're probably going to dive deeper into at least some of what you've been into in our next episode, right? Yep. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. It's going to be great. So are we just going to jump right in? I think we're just jumping right in. I think we should just jump right in because uh, we have a very exciting guest that we um, have on the podcast. Well, they're not here, but I interviewed them. Um, and that's Kelly Sue DeConnick, who is a person um, I have met a couple of times. Uh, really awesome, just person to to speak to. And so I was very excited when she agreed to, to do an interview for this podcast. So um, I guess we should let her introduce herself because she's just so full of wonderful things that she's doing. Kelly Sue DeConnick, comic book and television writer. Right now I am developing television with um, NBC Universal. Uh, I have two ongoing comic books. Pretty Deadly Volume 3 is... Uh, done in the style of a noir murder mystery comic. Um, and it will, it is set in 1920s Hollywood, um, and, uh, has an embedded storytelling style, uh, based on Lottie Reniger's silent film work and, um, bitch planet volume three is called fake news. And I have a couple of other comic projects that are not announced at present, unfortunately, but I'm very excited about. We should probably mention that this episode is going to have the name of one of her properties in it a lot. So like if you're in an office environment, you might not want to be listening over speakers because the name of that property is Bitch Planet. And I know that that's a word that might offend some people, um, but the comic is probably not what you're thinking it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's so I have, I think I've mentioned this on the show before that I'm not a super into comics type of person, but I definitely was intrigued when I was like, there's a comic called bitch. What is bitch planet? What is that about? Um, and I knew of Kelly Sue's work like previously, um, I'd interviewed her, um, before like many years ago when she was working on Captain Marvel. Um, and I was, I think I sort of like completely became her fan because we had this whole conversation about Carol Danvers hair. (laughs) (laughs) Her hair's awesome. Right. And so I went into um, reading Bitch Planet only knowing like a little bit of her work and mostly it was 
you know, like superhero comic work. But Bitch Planet is something, you know, else altogether. It's just a really interesting, um, you know, crunchy work. And it was fun because when I read, I can't remember if I was reading the introduction to the book or if I was reading some other interview or even just listening to her talk about it. But she, but she had said that her inspiration for this book came from a couple of different places. Um, and one of them was like her love of like prison exploitation movies, women prison exploitation movies, which they could be fun to watch, even though they're problematic. Um, but also, <laughs> um, th- this, you know, people, comic book writers writing in and saying like, oh, you're doing all this feminist nonsense, blah, blah, blah. And she's like, you thought that stuff was feminist? This- no, let me show you some like feminist, like, mm. so, so we'll get into that a little bit later. But, um, but yeah, like I, I really was intrigued by her idea of, you know, really loving the women prison exploitation, you know, film and, and writing something inspired by that. But of course, like, and, and she acknowledges this women prison exploitation films are, are problematic in many ways. And, um, so yeah, so I wanted to, to, you know, talk to her about that, about the idea of like being inspired by problematic things. I will also come across people discussing the book who either um, have taken something away from it that I did not intend or um, or have made an assumption about it based on the title that's incorrect. Um, and it's really important, I think, that I let that stand um, and not insert myself in that conversation. Um, and you know, if there's something I can take from it, in terms of, oh, I see why they didn't get that, or I, you know, then, then that's great. That's helpful. Um, but if not, you know, if somebody is just sees the title and assumes, um, that the comic is, you know, steeped in misogyny, then it's, I don't know. It's, 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 it's not for me to go running in like the Kool-Aid man and go, no, but what we're really trying to do, you see, is reimagine these tropes. And, you know, it's just, I think I really have to focus on what am I trying to do? What are the questions I'm trying to put in the world? What am I playing with for myself? Um, and I and I like to try with exploitation genre tropes is why do I like this? What is it that's appealing to me about it? And then is there any way that I can, I don't like make fun of what it, appeals to in me? Or is there any way that I can kind of flip the trope so it makes us think about why it's a trope? Or um, or can I crank it up to 11 in such a way as to call attention to what's ridiculous about it? Um, those are kind of different ways that I'll go about it. Yeah. So, it, you know, the and the thing I think I asked her specifically was, um, how do you go about like doing a piece of art that's inspired by something problematic without making it seem like you are problematic yourself. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that that's, you know, that can just, that's a really hard balancing act, but I do love the idea of her sort of just keeping, keeping tabs, but like at a distance on, you know, what people are saying, what kind of um, criticism they're offering of what she's doing, because, you know, there are some people, yeah, who like, who won't get it at all, who, who just like, won't understand, but there are some people who will engage. And even though I am also in the camp of like, don't, don't go looking for discussions of your work or reviews of your work. If you can't handle it, if you can't just like 
walk away from it and not engage. Um, but, but if you can't train yourself to do that, I feel like that's actually really valuable because I've learned so much about writing from reading other people's deep criticism, like not even just reviews on Goodreads or something, but the discussions that they have on their blogs and on social media. And I feel like I could learn a lot about how to make my writing better by reading those kind of discussions as well. But as, as Kelly Sue said, it's, um, it's not, it's not for the faint of heart, I guess I would say. So it's weird because I I think you have to know your personality, you know, to your point, because I've, I mean, I've seen authors argue with Amazon reviews. I've seen authors, uh, vanity search like on Twitter and then go into people's mentions and argue with them about their perspective. Uh, I've seen authors, uh, like all, all sorts of things, not just authors, other creative people too. Um, and I get that as someone who, who puts themselves out there, uh, I get that uh, desire to not just like respond, but like, I don't know, rebuke people for what they've said. And if you choose to look at reviews, um, you can't do that. Like you need to put your armor on before you you do that so that you kind of have a protective layer you've got to you know if you're not in a good spot emotionally you need to not do that it's you know I know a ton of podcasters don't look at the iTunes reviews for their 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 shows because they're just like I don't want to hear what people have to say I'm I'm just not going to do it because then I'm going to second guess everything I ever try to talk about and I just can't do it and they know that about themselves um which I think is awesome I, I mean I do you know you can't do that don't do that Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do, I do say that like if you are going to be skating into waters that are a little bit complicated or even a lot complicated, and you know what what Kelly Sue is doing with Bitch Planet is complicated in the fact that she is a white cisgender woman and uh, the artist um, who you know, she considers her collaborator and, um, actually there, we're going to talk about that a little later in the episode. Um, the artist is a black man and, but you know, a lot of the characters in this book and the main characters certainly are black women. And so neither of them is a black woman. So already it's, you know, it's a writing the other situation, you know, on some level. Um, and, and that could be a problem. And so, you know, part of, again, the reason why she's, keeping an eye on what's being said is because it helps her to, to just ensure that she's not, that she's not getting it wrong in some major way. And if you are going to embark on a a writing the other type of creative project, then you have to just be able to like be aware of and be able to sit with the criticism that you find around that specific point. Um, it, not just because you don't want, I'm, you know, you don't want to do it wrong because there's a million ways to get it wrong and it's not getting it wrong. That's the problem. It's getting it wrong and then doubling down on how you didn't get it wrong and never actually making it right. You know, part of this process is learning from the mistakes that you make and doing better next time. And sometimes the only way to do that is to go and read what your critics have to say or listen or whatever. 
And what, and I think what I would say to that, because I do completely agree, I think you're totally and completely right with that. If you're not able to do that, if you're not the type of person who can do that, then you should not be doing like what Kelly Sue is doing because you've got, that's the kind of feedback you have to listen to. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And so if you can't take that, don't do it. Just don't start. Yeah. And, and sometimes it does take a little bit of um, practice, I guess you could say, of just sitting with your feelings and sitting with people yelling at you. Um, There's a video on the Writing the Other website um, that's free. It's called uh, How to Stay in Your Lane. And it's a roundtable discussion between me, Justina Ireland, and Jamie Go, um, just talking about issues of, you know, writing the other and using a sensitivity reader and all this. And one of the things that I think it's Jamie that says this is that, you know, sometimes you need to get comfortable with being yelled at. Um, and you just have to, you know, for whatever situation, you just have to know that like that may happen to you. And if it does happen to you, you just have to like, just take it and deal with it. And, and so that you can then become comfortable with it. Now, one of my students, when I had them watch this video, brought up a good point in that, you know, it's all fine and good to say that, but some people, because of their mental health status, really can't take being yelled at. You know, it's, it's hard. And so, um, you know, there, and what they were saying was, it's like, it would be really nice if there was also a, a gentler way <laughs> to be able to, to have these hard discussions. And there is a gentler way. And quite honestly, um, it's, it's possible to have a, a non-yelling, but still truthful and, and like getting, getting the message really heard conversation with somebody about these issues. But I think that you first have to make it very clear to the people that are, you know, making the criticism or potentially making the criticism that you are able to take this criticism, but you need to, you need to engage in a different way. It's like, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. I don't invalidate what you're saying, but because of, you know, what's going on in my head, I just need to be able to take it in a different way. Would it be possible for me to do that with you? at some other time, in some other place, you know, whatever it is. Um, those, that's really difficult waters to navigate, though, as mm-hmm. well, because then some people just be like, you're just doing that because you're talking about the tone conversation, da-da-da. And, yeah, so it's all difficult. It is really difficult. I have a, I have a friend who we've kind of had these conversations where uh, she she calls me out on something, which she's justified in doing, Uh, and I get defensive because I'm not mentally in a place to hear it in the way that she chooses to present it. And, uh, then it becomes like this anxiety feedback loop (laughs) and and then nothing productive happens. And we've had to do that with, with each other several times where it's been like, look, I can't, I can't right now. I can't engage with this right now. I can't, um, you are right. And I also cannot like formulate the sentences that I need to formulate to have this conversation with you. And we need to revisit this. And I know I can do that with her. um, And she knows she can do that with me, but there are other people again, who are going to be like, yeah, no, now, now it's all about the tone and your tone policing me. And it's, it's, again, it's a very, very fine 
line to walk and it can be really hard, um, especially for someone like me who's very empathetic um, because I try not only do I have my own stress and anxiety to worry about, I have the other person and what are they thinking and what are they going through? And, um, did I do the right thing for them? And while also trying to do the right thing for me and it it can get really, really complicated and it's okay to feel like it's complicated, I guess is what my point is. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also this, uh, this next little bit that, um, from the interview with Kelly Sue, she's going to talk about other places that she sort of looks at criticism, which I think um, could be really helpful um, because it, it's a place where you don't necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily feel the need to argue with someone um, when reading this kind of criticism. I, I tend not to indulge myself in reading um, reviews, but I will read academic work based on the book, but I am interested in the way the book is used in academia and what questions it helps facilitate. And I think that does find its way into my thinking, constructing the book going forward. Also, um, you know, it is, this is a book that is largely about women of color and it is created by a white woman and a black man neither of us exists at that intersection. And that is problematic in and of itself. And I think that is a thing that we have to acknowledge and own. And I think it, there are different ways that we deal with it. Um, but the first is to own it. Yes. You got to own it as, as we were just saying. Um, but yeah, like I, I also agree that like looking at academic and you know you don't even have to look into like super deep academia. Like sometimes you can find stuff that is, you know, just available at, online. And a lot of times the the kind of blogs that really dig deep into what's going on with books, you know, are are quite academic enough. You know, they're they're on the level uh, or sometimes better than, you know, some of the actual published academic writing I've seen yeah. on different subjects because, you know, somebody's actually taking the time to really just delve deep into like what what's going on with this thing that they're reading and and what kind of problems with it are they seeing and and how are they reacting to it and whatnot. So if you are lucky enough to have a book or a series of books or something that you have created that is being sort of analyzed by academics, like thumbs up. But until that happens, you know, seeking out that kind of criticism or seeking out that kind of analysis can be good because again, it's just, it's all going to like feed into making you a better artist. So if you're, you have enough money, hire an assistant to, to read through, like, I just, I can't imagine like plugging my name into Google plus the name of a work and being like, okay, what do people have to say about this? Um, like I get it, but that's, you're gonna, that's hard. It is hard, but you know, what's interesting is that in other creative disciplines, you're more trained for this than you are, or at least than I was, for fiction. Um, I mentioned on this podcast before that I studied opera. Uh, I was a singer in college, and so I studied music. And I, I think I've told this story before, too. I can't remember now. But um, every semester, we had a class where we had to get up in front of everybody else who was in our department um, the opera people and the musical theater people, and we had to sing one thing. And 
it's the it was the most horrible experience ever because you're getting up in front of a group of people who are also singers so they're not impressed by you they don't <laughs> want to be there because this stupid class like was mandatory yet it gave us no credits it was a terrible class it wasn't even a class it was like a seminar um and so i had we had to get up there and then like we were all bored we all didn't want to be there. And then somebody's getting up and they're singing a song that, of course, like we've sung or we're going to sing or whatever. Like, Or you've heard 50 million times. Right. So it's just like, it's the toughest of tough rooms. There are no tougher rooms except for maybe, maybe like really sketchy bars where everybody's drunk and you're getting up and trying to do like a puppet show. Like maybe that's <laughs> the tougher room than this. Maybe. Um, and we had to do that every semester. Um and then, of course, there is, like, actual performing. But, you know, even when you're in, like, some sort of recital situation or whatever, most of the people who are there want to be there or, you know, they're not there to hate you. But that class, nobody wanted, nobody wanted that. Um, and so that – and that's just, like, sort of, you know – one step in the process of getting you used to getting up in front of people and performing and, you know, feeling that embarrassment or whatever. There was, there was a lot of that, but I, you know, I'm sure it's very much the same when it comes to dance. I know it's also the same when it comes to like musical instruments. Um, almost every other discipline like sort of gets you into situations where you are just going to have to deal with the fact that like people are looking at you and they're judging you and they're giving you this criticism and feedback and you just have to sit there and take it. You can't yell and stomp and, and, you know, run out of the room or whatever. But, uh, I don't know of any similar training for authors. We should, we should have that. The only thing I can think of, <laughs> let me come heckle you. I want you to read out loud, like I'm, it's slam poetry. Um, I hope there's not a lot of heckling in slam poetry. Uh, the only other I mean, thing maybe. I, the only other thing <laughs> I can think of is of like writers groups. Um, and that's, that's also a very different environment because ostensibly everybody wants to be there. Like I've never done a writers group. So um, that's on my maybe list for... I don't know when things slow down for me, never, but like, um, I I assume that that's, everybody wants to be there, right? Yeah. Whether they want to be there that exact moment or not. Okay, fine. But by and large, people are in writer's groups because they want to improve their writing and help other people improve their writing. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so, so maybe that's a thing is like writers, you're all required, um, upon publication, you have to go to a convention and you have to read um, a poem or do an interpretive dance and get the audience response to that to kind of bolster you a little bit. Or maybe it should like there should be a, a class where it's like, all right, this entire class is just us telling you that your work is horrible and derivative. And you oh. just have to like live through that. And then, but at the end of the class, we're like, okay, now let's have cookies. Yes. Yeah. We're all friends, right? Yeah. So <laughs> now that we've invented another class. There we go. Um <laughs> for nobody for me steal to do. my idea. It's all right. We gotta we gotta make it happen. Um so yeah, uh as I mentioned uh earlier, uh aside from the prison exploitation films, which is like sort of the problematic aspect of the inspiration behind Bitch Planet, the other thing was like, you know, I'm gonna write a book. That is like totally like feminist, the kind of like feminism that people are always afraid that I'm bringing to a book, even when I'm just like writing as a woman. 
Uh, and so I asked Kelly Sue about um, how how that and and also just sort of like can can things that make you angry be a good motivator for the kind of art that you create? I love this. Oh, I am hugely motivated by spite. Okay, I'm just going to stop that because I heard this. I am hugely motivated by spite and I need that on a sticker or something. All right, so I'll replay it because it delights me and then we'll go on with things. Oh, I am hugely motivated by spite. Yes. Um, But I will say that what's sort of interesting to me about the reception of Bitch Planet, and we learned this more pointedly when we were working on the Bitch Planet anthology than from anything else was um, Valentine and I consider the book to be a comedy. Um, And boy, uh, we are in a minority. Um, It's been very interesting. Like we, to us, the tone that we are aiming for is the tone of Verhoeven's um, Robocop. Um, And Robocop functions as a satire very effectively because it has on one end this really nasty, pointed, biting um, satire of corporate culture. And then on the other end, this really saccharine sentimentality. And the two make each other palatable by their coexistence. Um, And that is what we are trying to do, like very deliberately with Bitch Planet, the... um, satirizing patriarchal culture, um, from an intersection, intersectional feminist point of view. And at the same time, grounding it with these, um, hyper sentimental relationships and characters. And, um, and we find that what comes of that from, for us is funny. Um, but when we were taking, pitches for stories set in the world for the anthology, we really had to coach people to pull out the humor. Um, uh, The pitches that we got were very dark and very angry. Um, And it was really interesting to see because they're pitching based on what they perceive the tone of the book to be. And that was kind of fascinating. So do you feel like the tone of that book is is, uh, a mix of humor as well as like the biting commentary on patriarchy? So it's been a while. I've read the first two volumes. I haven't read volume three quite yet. Um, and it's been, it's been a while. Um, I would say, yes, that does resonate that it, it, to me, there are these very like funny, humorous moments, but I can see like, if I had tried to pitch a story in the bitch planet universe, it it would also have been really, really grim because the social commentary is profound and damning um, in a lot of ways. Like I, I read it and I'm like, whoa, that's, um, I don't know, like that's not far off from happening. Like I could envision this kind of thing happening um, and it's concerning, right? Because it, it it's not like Bitch Planet isn't the most far-fetched bit of fiction you will ever read. Um, and so 
I totally get the pitches that they got. I totally understand why people pitched those. Um, I can also see her, Kelly Sue and and Valentine's perspective on it too. About it's a it's satirical. It's supposed to be yes, a commentary, but also a comedy. Comedy, and I get where they're coming from, but that would not be the way I would describe it. How about you? Yeah, I think that I wouldn't necessarily describe any of the tone as as humorous, but what I do agree with is uh, about like the very like the way that the relationships work. Um actually, I just I just completely lied because something popped into my mind and it was like the way that um the media interacts with or the media is portrayed in the book, um, some of the ways that, especially the men back on planet earth have of like pretending that everything is just great. Like some of that is sort of like funny in a way that you're like, Oh, ha ha. Look at this, like utter nonsense that these people like truly believe in. But then, you know, I could turn on the TV right now yep. to CNN or MSNBC and I could say the exact same thing. So <laughs> So yes, I I also agree. It's just like this is not all that super far fetched, but you know, I I also think that because of the way that it is such a you know to use her words like a biting commentary on these on these issues and on the issues of like you know like patriarchy taken to the extreme or whatnot. Um, there are a lot of people who are angry about those things right now, and. And not to say that Kelly Sue isn't angry about those things right now, because clearly, you know, like this is this is one of the reasons why she wanted to like, you know, explore this. But um, I also feel like there are a lot of folks who who are not necessarily they don't want to balance out that anger with the other stuff. But I do think that sometimes you do have to in order to make whatever you're trying to write, like somewhat not even palatable isn't even the right word, but something that appeals to more aspects of the human psyche than just the anger, which is, I think that that's how great art works. I think, you know, when it, it reaches out and touches something in you and speaks to you on several different levels. Um, I'm thinking about a book that I just read recently called Children of Blood and Bone by Tomi Adeyemi. Uh, It's a really wonderful book. It's YA. And that book is very much, you know, uh, informed by the right now, like what's going on with oppression, um, with the way that people treat other people when they're they want to like oppress them because they're afraid of them. Um, so it's, it's very much like in that the realm of like the things that are going on right now that are super depressing and anger making. But there's also, this is also a story about some teenagers who are dealing with some really heavy stuff, but also falling in love and having adventures for the first time. And, you know, like learning to be brave. Um, even when they're really terrified. And so, yeah, there's like, there is, there are both things in that book. And that that's one of the things that I find the most successful about the book is because it's not just about the other thing. It's also about the, the emotions that these people are having and the way that they're navigating through these, through the world and realizing that they don't only have, have themselves, they have each other. So 
something something that I'm now thinking of that I just realized about one of the things I look for in stories is that complexity and balance. I feel like, and I'm working through this as I'm talking, but I feel like the stories that I don't like are often very mired in trying to be a single thing. So I feel like if, if you have something that's trying to be dark and edgy and is only dark and edgy, I think that's a little boring. That's not to be said it can't be done well, but I think it's a little bit boring. And I think one of the things that resonates about Bitch Planet for me is that it is, it is a very um, deep social commentary, I guess. But it's also, it has those moments of levity, um, maybe not levity, but it has moments of humor. And um, so you're not reading it just feeling one thing. You're not just reading it feeling despair. You have those counter notes to kind of balance it out a little bit. I don't know. Does any of that make sense? Like, I feel like, and as I'm thinking about it, the things that I didn't like in high school, like the things that you make, they make you read in high school, like, um, or middle school, like Lord of the Flies and, uh, Animal Farm in 1984 and like all of these things, they're just sad, depressing books. And I hated them. Like I hated, I think, everything I was assigned to read in school because it just felt to me like one note. Now, 15 years on, I might feel differently about them if I read them and probably see more nuance in them. But I don't know. Does any of this make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think one of the the sad failings of most assignments for English is the fact that well, there's a lot of feelings, but one of them is, is that some of these books weren't even written for the age that we were yeah. to be reading them. Um, and secondly, you know, they weren't the way that we are sort of taught, well, not even taught, but like the way that teachers seem to want us to read them is not a way that you would necessarily read them and then imbibe things from it. If you just chose to read it on your own. Like I remember Oh my God, having to read The Great Gatsby. And The Great Gatsby is not a terrible book, but I remember having to write a book report about it. And I was like, yes, the spectacles are a metaphor for eyes. Like I just pull it, you know, I just read the cliff notes because I didn't see any of that in the book. And part of the reason why I didn't see any of that in the book is because I wasn't old enough to have enough experience to really like understand how metaphors and symbolism worked in books and nobody actually really told me about that. They were just like, go read this book. Now tell us about the symbolism. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Um, and the other, the other problem is, is that most of the time we're like in modern Western culture, we're not really taught deeply how symbolism works anyway, which is why we don't get a lot of art from the Renaissance because a lot of, or like even like Renaissance other pastimes, because a lot of that art is very steeped in a specific cultural symbolism that we are not privy to. It's like, it's another language. Mm -hmm. These things are not taught to us. Um, but, but yeah, so there's, there's that kind of problem. And, but then yes, yeah, so there's all this like fiction that's like, Oh, it's such great fiction, whatever. It's some one note fiction. Lord of the Flies is a terrible book. I'm just going to say it. Yes. It's a terrible book. I never read 1984 Animal Farm, so I can't comment on those, but, um, 
but I remember knowing that Lord of the Flies was a terrible book when I was a kid because I had heard that William Goldman, or was that his name? Whatever. The Gold. author. Yeah. Something. The author had written a book to explain the symbolism in his book. And I was like, no. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. That's like going into your Amazon reviews and being like, right. no, like you no. clearly don't understand what's happening. <laughs> right. Like, sorry. Like, you wrote a book to explain the book? No. No, Mm-mm. your book's terrible, son. It's terrible. Um, so yeah, I I see that, but because because yeah, I f- I feel like a lot of the books that I read when I was a kid were that I liked were more of a mixture of things. I mean, and I'll even go on record as saying that I liked the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, even though mm-hmm. as an adult you're supposed to be like, well, the Chronicles of Narnia are Christian propaganda, and so nobody can like them, and nobody's allowed to read them. Blah 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 blah. Whatever. I read them as a kid, and I was just like, it's fantasy, and that's. It took me a really long time to even understand that they were Christian propaganda. Like somebody had to straight up say to me, Aslan is Jesus, and I'm like, why would you even say that to me? That doesn't make <laughs> sense. And they were like, Tempest, he dies. <laughs> And then he comes back to life. And I was like, but it's a fantasy novel. That happens all the time. Like, <laughs> you know, yep. for me, like my touchstone of he died and came back to life is not Jesus. It's it's like Superman dies every good three, four years. <laughs> like what? <laughs> um I'll just so, yeah, get back so, in the next episode or next issue. It's fine. Right. It's fine. So yeah, but but I thought that. And I still think that the most of the Narnia books work as fantasy novels on top of whatever like Christian allegory C.S. Lewis was trying to impart um, because he wasn't just doing that one thing. Like he wasn't just like trying to push a Christian doctrine on children. He was telling children a story that was interesting to them. And also it was based on his ideas about what it meant to be a Christian. Um, now, I will say that le- some of the later Narnia books... That last book is very, very heavy-handed. <laughs> yeah. The last battle is not... It's not all right. But, no. Um, <laughs> because I think he was tired. He's like, well, time to close up shop. Aslan is tired. We're all tired. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some there's some racism. Especially a horse and his boy. I loved a horse and his boy as a kid. When I read it as an adult, I was like, this is so racist. What is happening? Um, but... You know, again, like it seemed like C.S. Lewis's priority really was like just trying to tell this story, but the story came from a well deep inside of him, you know, where he was like, he was trying to impart basically like his ideas about the world. Um, And so I, I think they, most of them still work. So yeah, it's, it's when works of fiction are working on multiple levels is when they work best. And that's, like I said earlier, like that's when you get great art. And I think that Pretty Deadly is is working on multiple levels as well. And that's what makes it so engaging. I'm going to have to get this from the library because I have not read them. And I am super excited to now. Do it. Do it. <laughs> well, speaking of people reacting to your book and being like, oh, my God, why? Um, uh, I asked Kelly, uh, because actually you, Aline, you wanted me to to, to have her talk about um, just like her response to the fan response to Bitch Planet. And I will say that like shortly after I did this interview, a friend of mine bopped up to me wearing a necklace, an NC necklace. And the, in, if you haven't read Bitch Planet yet, um, there's like a 
a design like it says NC it stands for non-compliant and it's what they like put on the women in the book for non-compliant they're non-compliant women and people are like yeah I'm non-compliant mm-hmm. and so like it's wearing his jewelry it's made his tattoos it's really great and and yeah it's like you know I would think like I can't wait for people to be like tattooing stuff that I did <laughs> and making fan art and stuff and so I was also interested in in the answer to this too just like how how she you know is like reacting to to what fans are doing um, in response to this book. Well, and part of the reason I wanted you to to ask is because I have seriously considered getting a non-compliant tattoo. And um, what I ultimately decided is that it's not my inter- intellectual property and they can do whatever they want to with it. And if they go in a direction that I really disagree with, am I going to be upset that I have this tattoo on me? Depending upon what happens, maybe, but I love looking at the non-compliant tattoos that people get because they are awesome. They are amazing. Um, I'll let Kelly Sue talk about it now, though. I try to keep my ego out of it as much as possible. Um, Dan Curtis Johnson is a, an, another writer and friend of mine, and he articulated the tattoo phenomenon so well. What he said was, um, you don't get that tattoo because you're a fan of the book. You get that tattoo because the book is a fan of something in you. And I think that is incredible, incredibly correct. And, and, um, I, I will say Valentine's design on the NC, making that so simple and iconic and beautiful and open to interpretation with the way people have used different things to fill in the, the large spots of black, you know, they, some people will do it in floral or pride flags or all kinds of cool things. Um, I think Valentine's in, incredibly iconic design has contributed to it. But other than that, he and I try to step out of that, that it isn't about us. It isn't really even about our book. It is that our book has happened upon something that gives people a convenient way to communicate something about themselves that they feel on a deep level. And that isn't about us. It is between, you know, like them and their bodies. And, um, and we love it and are humbled by it. And it's really cool to see, but it's a, I think it's important for us to understand that our role in that has been, um, with the exception of his design work, our, our role in that has really just been to have kind of stumbled into a, a something that people can use to articulate something about themselves. I like that whole idea. I do too. And it made me think about why at one point I was considering getting an NC tattoo. And it is because so many of the things in Bitch Planet resonate with me from a like a social justice um ethics, what is right, what what do other people have a right to? Um, I don't know. Like it just obviously it resonates with a lot of people, including including me. And I think that her her response, the like it's basically like it doesn't belong to me, you know, kind of that I've I put it out there and now it's it's theirs. <laughs> like it's other people's and I had a really small part of creating that. Um, I don't know. There, there's something about that answer that is uh, aspirational, right? Like, I just, 
I put it out there and then what people do with it is up to them. Um, and I like that. Yeah, same. Um, I also think that it, it really speaks to my love of the way that there can be collaborations at a distance, you know, like, yeah, you know, just the way that like, okay, I, you know, somebody has written this, written and drawn this comic. Somebody else out there wants to like put some element from the art or quote from it on their body because, you know, it's, it speaks to something in them. Right. And then, or somebody else will go and they're like, I'm going to like make this art based on this idea and use, you know, this little element from the thing that has inspired me. Um, but then like create this whole thing and I'm going to write this fan fiction or I'm going to write like some totally original fiction, but like that's something that like clicked in my head when I was reading this other thing or looking at this image or whatever. Um, I feel like that is, that's the best part of being a creative person is, is having those interactions. And I think this, I don't, this is like a really weird segue, but I think this is why I appreciate so much of rap and hip hop music. And I will, uh, ride or die and beat down anybody who tries to say that like rappers who are using samples from other people's work are totally unoriginal because in order for you to like listen to somebody else's song, and think of a way to mix up that song to make a different song that's also speaking to something inside of you. That is art. That mm-hmm. it is. Um, and I sort of think of like this, this, you know, thing with people like wanting to get, you know, a tattoo or a piece of jewelry or something um, with the NC on it. You know, it's, it's of the same type, you know, at, at its foundations, right. Of that kind of art. Um yeah. And, and I just, I always appreciate it because I, I feel like that is, that should be your goal as an artist to have somebody else come along and like want to, you know, want to use what you've done as a seed for what they're going to do. Um, one of the, so everybody loves Hamilton, right? La la la. So just like a given, everybody in the world loves Hamilton. I, the first time I listened to the Hamilton mixtape, I cried because I was listening to these hip hop artists take, you know, these different songs from Hamilton and do something with them that made me understand Hamilton better. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that was possible. I didn't think that was possible, but I was just like, Oh my God, like, how did they, what, how did this happen? Uh, and, and so I, I spent the whole day crying thinking about like all the different feelings that I was having about Hamilton and about these artists because of what they had done. So yeah, again, I will say that is what great art is about. That's my theme for today. That's what great art is. Even Lin-Manuel Miranda, Hamilton is like this huge remix. And um, I don't know, there's probably a word for what I'm thinking of, but like he pays homage to hip hop in eighties and nineties music. And, um, and all of the stuff is really wrapped into like, if you get, listen to the Broadway cast recording, it's in there. There are a ton of references. I don't get like, I've done this deep dive into like lyrics analysis and where did this come from? And his musical knowledge and background and, um, 
his ability to weave all of that together is truly like it's transformative right and and it's amazing it's absolutely amazing even my husband who doesn't like any of the music stylings really in Hamilton walked out of seeing it and was like that was really good I liked Wicked better but it was really good you know and and it would Hamilton would not exist I I seriously doubt Hamilton would not exist had it not been for the paving stones of all of this musical um, history and for Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical literacy. It wouldn't, if it did exist, it would not be what it is without that. And I think that is awe-inspiring. Like, I think it's awesome in the truest meaning of the word. Yeah, exactly. I mean, who would have thought that like some dude would be like, I'm just going to read this biography. Right? And it's boring. I'm sorry. That biography is boring. <laughs> oh, no. I'm Poor sorry. Ron. I know. Sorry. Um, but yeah, he's like, I read his biography and be like, I'm going to write a musical. I'm going to write a hip hop musical about Alexander Hamilton. Like who? You couldn't, you couldn't like predict that. Right. You could not predict that. Of course, now, you know. I'm sure everybody else is out there like trying to like recreate that genie in a bottle moment, but mm, don't read a biography of Thomas Jefferson, man. It's nothing but rape. Millard Fillmore, the musical. Like, I just don't know. Oh my God. That'd be amazing. <laughs> well, speaking of, um, <laughs> like, how do we get to the next part? <laughs> no, we're going to speak of Millard Fillmore. Um, but also, okay. So, I love the, you know, idea of like all these different ways that people can like interact with art and whatever. Um, and we've talked on uh, this show before about collaboration and, you know, how that works for people. And another one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to Kelly Sue is because um, I believe I heard her speaking at Powell's bookstore and giving, she wasn't there with her artist, but she was giving a lot of credit to Valentine um, as a collaborator on this book. And, you know, I have heard other artists, I believe actually both Nyla Magruder and um, Grace Fong spoke to this a little bit about how, you know, in comic books, there's a lot of like, oh, yes, such and so wrote that. And the other artists, blah, 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 whatever. They're not that important. Like, no, (laughs) they're very important. And Kelly Sue considers Valentine like a collaborator in creating these stories, these characters, this world, right? So I, I asked her a little bit about that collaborative process and, and why it was it's so hard for people, audiences, to conceptualize of it being a collaborative process, the putting together of a comic book or a graphic novel. For some reason, um, people have real difficulty conceptualizing shared authorship. Um, especially I think if there are two writers, they can conceive of that. But, um, but for some reason, when, when it's an artist and a writer collaboration, they tend to want to structure their thinking as though the writer is the lead creative and has only deigned to work with an artist because they themselves can't draw. And that's just 
not true. It's, it's inaccurate. It's not how comics work. It's not how collaboration works. And, um, I mean, on the most basic level, I know writers who are fantastic artists who still work with other artists on, you know, they, they could draw their own comics and yet they don't, you know, and it's, um, uh, you know, or they do at, you know, like let's Emma Rios, for example, Emma and I work together on Pretty Deadly and uh, I am the writer and she is the artist. Um, but that feels silly. We still, we prefer to re- refer to it as, you know, we, we co-create the book. And then um, she does Mirror with Hue Lem and, um, and Emma writes that book and Hue illustrates um, and, you know, Emma's perfectly capable of drawing a comic book herself, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's not, it's, it is, she chooses to collaborate with Hue because, um, the book they make together is different than the book she would make by herself. I love that, that the book they make together is different from the book she would make by herself. Like in the tech industry where I kind of live and work, um, <laughs> We talk a lot about like having diverse teams, at least the corners of the tech industry I belong to. And you think about like this collaboration just between two people and how just these two people, if you have a different writer with the same idea or different artists with the same idea, like it's going to be completely different than if you put this combination of two people together. Like just that combination of two people, just two people creates this unique thing right and it's kind of cool to think about like the the alternate universes where there was a different artist or a different writer or whatever and and what that would look like it would be completely different totally and completely different yeah you know a person's um influences shape the kind of art they create, their background shapes, the kind of art they create, and the other people that they are creative around shape the art that they create. So yeah, if you're um if you're gonna collaborate with one person and and you create something, it's just as if you each had like it's it's that whole idea of like, even though, you know, writers like, oh I gotta protect my idea, I gotta protect my idea. Like, oh, it's so original. If I took your same sort of basic idea and you took your same sort of basic idea, we could produce two totally different things because we're, we're different people. And so, yeah, when you collaborate, you know, then it's like creating some sort of weird third person. Yeah. (laughs) Like an amalgamation of you too. Yeah. And that's, and, and that is, you know, that's really beautiful. And, and uh, again, it's like, yes, the, the book that Emma would create herself is different from the book that she creates with someone else. And it's different from the book that she would create with a, a person other than that artist. Um, it's, it all goes together. Like there's, there's no way that, you know, somebody could be writing a comic book and have an artist and have that artist not influence anything about that comic book, you know, because there's there's bad art, mm-hmm. right? It's like you got bad art in that comic book. Doesn't matter how how good those words are. There's bad art. Um, and you know, just being able to work with another person, like understanding how to do that, like that that does different things to your creativity. Um, it it makes it better, I would think. Tempest, it makes a fusion. 
You're so right. It's holy like, mix of fusion. It's like you've made a garnet. But as, actually, <laughs> isn't that isn't that what a mala multar? I think like we. I think we said this, we talked about this in the, in the collaboration episode that we did before that it makes a fusion. Um, because yes, uh, yeah, like we did. We did. Yes, we did. Yeah. That's, that's something that Amala Maltar first said. And I was like, ah, because it's true. So yeah. yes, you have to create garnet and then you can create great art. Yeah. <laughs> um, another thing that I actually think is, can be really useful to any creative person is to just be open to stepping into other artistic disciplines um, and learning a little bit about them. And I was, I've always felt this way, but I was really glad to, um, when I was asking Kelly about the whole collaborative process and whether or not it was something that she was sort of prepared for when she first uh, started working in comics or if that was something that she had to learn, um, that she said that she already had sort of like a background in working with other folks. Um, and then she said something really interesting. I come from theater, so I am very much a collaborative artist. I'm, I am accustomed to working in a group and working together to tell a story with everyone bringing their talents. So that comes naturally to me. The more I understand about like creating and creativity, the more I'm like, it would just benefit everybody if everybody like did something in another discipline for even if just for a little while, even if it's not necessarily like going to be your career or whatever. But just like go be involved in a theater production, go be involved in the making of a student film. Well, yeah, because I don't know, varied life experiences all play into like feel like a broken record maybe but like it all plays into how you think about things and how you will approach them like every, every maybe not literally every experience you've had like every interaction with a grocery store clerk or whatever but like there are there are so many experiences that influence how we are and slightly tweak our perception of the world and how we approach it that doing things outside of yourself is really, really important. I think that's part of the reason I have my hands in so many baskets is because like I'm juggling so many things is because I like seeing things from different perspectives and doing things in different ways. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes doing something in other realms actually gets you it can change how you how you think about working in um, the thing that you consider like your main creativity, um, and this is uh, something that again Kelly Kelly brought up spontaneously. I was like, "This is amazing!" Um, when she was talking about um, doing TV writing and some of the things that she brought from TV writing over to comic writing, or she wanted to. In TV, there's two things that we do that I, we don't do in comics. And I'm like, I came back to comics. and was like, oh, I want to start doing these things. Um, and one is a tone meeting and another is a color meeting. Um, and you know, I, I've, I generally, I tend to work more closely with the letterer and, um, I, I kind of envision the, uh, uh, the, the partnership of the, the colorist and the, um, uh, penciler or, you know, the, the, the artist and the colorist is working together m more closely. And I try, I don't want to insert myself that in that relationship, you know, but, um, this thing I learned in, in television 
you know, we're like really thinking about color and mood and how we tell story with color. And I know my colorists think about it, but now I'm like, oh, I want to be part of that conversation because in a, as I'm scripting, I can understand how that's going to play out, right? And I can make suggestions or, um, or just give opportunities for you to execute on these ideas that you have. The tone meaning is where the writers sit down with the director and go through the script page by page and just kind of talk through what you were going for. And how we've never done that, I don't know. But I mean, we, we have such a like purist idea of like, I must have, commu- you know, I need to have communicated it on the page. And if I, you know, and if I didn't communicate it on the page, I'm go- not going to figure that out until the art comes in, you know? And like to talk them through and allow them to ask questions so you can clarify, oh, you know, no, that is totally not what I meant. I did not get that across. You know, like, I don't know. It's, um, we're so informal in comic scripting. It's, um, it's almost an epistolary model, you know, like a letter to someone and it can be so personal and so informal that sometimes um, I think we think we've just bared our souls and communicated everything and and talking through it with the artist just gives you an opportunity to kind of make sure. And the other thing that can happen is stuff that doesn't, that would have happened, might've happened anyway, might've, but might've happened separately. So there, this is an opportunity in the chatting for the artist to say, hey, I like what you did here, but I kind of want to do this because I think it like ups the tension. And what do you think about? And then you could be like, oh no, that's great. Actually, do you want me to revise? I can give you dialogue for that right now. So you don't have to like draw it first. So this kind of collaboration is my favorite collaboration. Like I've never done comic book scripting and I've definitely never worked in in TV, but this like the back and forth in the riffing, I love it. As introverted as I am, as stubborn as I am, I love that kind of that iteration and the strength that collaboration can bring to things. I live for it. It's so much fun. Yeah. And I just, I love that idea of, you know, going off into the world of TV writing and coming back and being like, we need to apply this to comic book scripting because it will make it so much easier Mm -hmm. for us to have conversations and to, to get what we want out of the first pass or most of what we want out of the first pass. Um, Yeah. I just, and I'm trying to think of like lessons that I have learned from like other artistic disciplines. I mean, you know, there was what I was talking about earlier, which is standing in front of a bunch of people who don't give a flip about you and singing like that, that I think has helped me deal more um, with rejection and criticism in my writing because there's very little that's worse than that experience. I'm still traumatized. Mm -hmm. Um, It sounds awful. It really does. It's not okay. Um, So, you know, I, I had a little bit of that that I brought over from singing. Um, but yeah, like now I'm like, what other ways that could I work if I learned, if I like went off and, you know, danced or something? <laughs> well, even in software development, I think there's um, these, these collaborations can happen. So, you know, again, my background in tech and, um, you know, if you have a team of developers talking to one another about how you name things, like what kind of name does this class or method or whatever this variable need to have? Um, because those can have profound effects on not necessarily the functionality of your code specifically, because the compiler doesn't care what you name those things, but 
on the way that you perceive what is happening and the people who are going to come after you um, and the people who are reviewing your code or whatever, the way that they perceive what you're trying to do, those things have a profound impact on it. Um, and, and yeah, like, so these, these discussions about creativity and creation that you have with people within a team or whatever, um, it's, it's really cool. And it does, like I said, it makes everything stronger. I mean, hopefully, maybe not by default, but. I agree. And I feel like that's something that people have to sort of actively do. You, like, you have to actively explore what it, different ways to consider different problems, different ways to do work um, that may not be the kind of way that is traditional in your discipline or just what everybody's doing at your particular job or whatever. Um, but then you have to like find the other people in, in your arena who are like open to that sort of thing. It's a much easier when you're an artist because you can be like, I'm going to go over here and do my art. I don't know what y'all are doing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to art, art this new way. Going to art it up. Art it up. Uh, one of the things I liked that Kelly Sue talked about that we're we have we're not going to play, but she was talking about collaborating with somebody new and having a new artist to work with, and how um, she approached them and was like, "So, how do you like the scripts? You know, what do you want? What do you want and need from a script?" And they kind of decided that Kelly Sue would write three different scripts and three different styles with like different levels of detail and stuff. And then that they would work it out from there. And that flexibility, I thought, I I don't know, it was really impressive. Like, yeah, like you can't be, you can't be rigid either. You have to, um, you have to actually work with people when you're collaborating. And I think that's something that we can, we can also forget. Like we get really invested in our perspective. Always be flexible people. That's the lesson for today. And watch RoboCop. Yeah. I forgot, to, I forgot to talk about how she started talking about RoboCop. I was like, wow, RoboCop? Yeah. And then I was like, but she has a point. She does. Like, that is a real deep like analysis of RoboCop, the film. So nothing, not the new one, the original one. I forgot there was a new one. I mean, I think there's a new one. I yeah, seem to is. recall there was yeah. a reboot. I don't, I don't do reboots. No. So yeah, we got to do it. So, so yeah, but just the, she was really fascinating to talk to and just, um, I'm all of her work. I, I see like that level of, of care, um, and of openness and, uh, you know, being really like into just producing this, something that's not just like, it's only me, it's me and these other people. And it's me in long distance communication with those folks over there. And, you know, just ah, so wonderful. So yeah. So thank you to Kelly Sue DeConnick for that wonderful interview and conversation. And, and yeah. So is there anything else that you wanted to talk about based on this conversation, Aline? Um, I don't think so. I think that, you know, again, collaboration and thoughtfulness and um, yeah, collaboration and thoughtfulness, I think are forevermore going to be ongoing themes in our episodes just because they're so, so important. So if you're not good at collaboration and if you're just throwing stuff out there and aren't willing to listen to people telling you what um, could be improved about it and maybe start working on that. Yes. You got to, just go somewhere and just be yelled at. I'm sure there must be a service 
there must be dominatrixes out there who are willing to just yell at you and tell you that your work is horrible so that you can just like sort of get used to it, get inured to it. Yeah. Mm hmm. I feel like that. Mm hmm. I'm going to start that service. All right. So uh, we'll let Kelly tell you where you can find her on social media if you would like to or anywhere on the Internet. You can find me on the internets at milkfed.us, M-I-L-K-F-E-D.us, or on Twitter at Kelly Sue, K-E-L-L-Y-S-U-E, on Instagram at Kelly Sue D. And you can find the show on Twitter at Originality FM. You can find me um, I'm at Aline on Twitter. Um, I'm also on in some other places now. I'm on uh, Mastodon.social, also Aline, micro.blog, also Aline. So um, you can find me in a lot of places. And Tempest, where can people find you? You can't find me. I'm mysterious. Oh. I'm moving mysterious ways. Oh. But I suppose if you if you were really looking, you might be able to find me on Twitter at Tiny Tempest. Uh, and on Instagram as Tempest Bradford. Or you could go to my website, keytempestbradford.com. Um, I'm real stealthy. It's, it's so <laughs> difficult. So difficult to find me. Well, I think that's it for this time. Remember that we're doing one show a month um, this month, also next month. And then we'll be back to our biweekly schedule. Um, so until next time, take care and... Get a non-compliant tattoo. <laughs> yes, everybody get a non-compliant tattoo. Do it.